Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. Um, this week is episode number 88 and I am joined by Andy Truscott and we are in the middle of the three week Creative Dundee special. Hopefully you enjoyed uh, catches last week um, and I'm looking forward to Laurie's next week. Uh, but yeah, it's Andy, who's he's been at Creative Dundee for a while, I suppose, um, and I've just managed to convince him. Uh, I've asked him a few times, but finally uh, managed to to get him on the podcast. Yeah, and obviously, as I say, he's um, the team administrator at uh, Creative Dundee, but he also um, has a band called Kinbrae, uh, which is himself and his brother, his twin brother, Andrew, and um, they've been doing that for quite a few years, and to be honest, the, the episode is mainly focused around that because that's his, his creative practice. Um, and it's fascinating to sort of go through that journey and how he started off in music and then ended up sort of weaving a career around it and then is sort of moving back and pushing back into the music side of things now. Um, yeah, so it's sort of a really nice ebb and flow through that that journey and, and quite a few key nice points throughout um yeah and then randomly at the end i'd <laughs> throw in a bit of a curveball of something we just started talking about one night um around classic football shirts um which yeah i, d- I mean the opportunity is going to be few and far between to actually get that sort of chat on the podcast so i thought why not um yeah so we chat about the nature of i mean yeah th- like the the design of, of classic football shirts and and why we need more iconic, beautiful, mad, crazy, uh, ridiculous football shirts and why they're far too boring these days. Um, although there does seem to be a bit of a resurgence. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's that's the, the, the intro ramble done. Uh, let's get into the episode. So this is number 88 and it's with Andy Truscott. Um, I went to high school in St Andrews, which was... Yeah, interesting. I couldn't wait to leave, to be honest. <laughs> um, I got first got in, growing up, I was obsessed with football. And then as I got into my teens, I got really into playing drums, really. I was absolutely obsessed with playing drums. I think it was because my, one of my best pals, older sisters, said she always fancied drummers. <laughs> so I was like, yes, that's a good reason to start. So it didn't really help in any way, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, so I started, must be about 13 or something when I started drumming. Um, I just got absolutely obsessed with it and, you know, played in bands in high school. Um, I don't know, I've always been one of those people that I've never really known what, what I wanted to do career-wise. So, like, it was quite funny in going to high school in St Andrews because, you know, it's quite a posh part of the world, so everyone's at that high school. I went to Madras, not like I went to private school, but still it's, quite a high achieving high school so a lot of people went on to study engineering or law you know all that type of thing you know the creative side of things at school wasn't really encouraged that much maybe compared to other schools I don't know but um, so yeah I had a lot of pals that went away to uni in Glasgow and all that to yeah study engineering and I and my twin brother he was he was really good at music at school. I never studied music at school, but he did. He was really good at the classical side of things. So he went ended up going to Glasgow Uni to study music. But I never really... I, I loved music, but I never thought I was good enough to do it. Um, so I ended up taking two years out from school. I think I was like the only one in my year that took two years out. Um, and then I decided... When you say you took two years out, would... But just to work. Got a job for two years. Um... And then I, I kind of decided halfway through those two years that I wanted to do music in some way, but I'd never studied at high school. So I'd got like hires in English and all that sort of thing, but not in music, so... But you, uh, this, you're still, you've been playing for a few years at this point, though, right? Yeah. So I think the first band I was in, actually, was um, Sue Shaw, was the singer. We were in the same year at school, so you've heard her on the podcast before, so that's going back a long time. But um, What was the name of the band? You know what, I can't even remember. It was so... I honestly can't remember. <laughs> it was so long ago. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just, like, I always loved to do music, so I thought I applied to do an HNC. Because I had hires, I didn't have to go, like... had hires in English and a couple of other things. I didn't have to go, like, the 
the access entry level route I could get into an HNC. So I got into HNC in music performance at Reed Care College, it was called, in Paisley, which is now the West College of Scotland or something. It's all they all merge, like a lot of the colleges merge together. Um, and that was like a total game changer going there. Like, just because I moved to Glasgow as well at that point, so this was in 2007. So again, like growing up here and all your pals leave to go to uni, I just I couldn't wait to leave. Like, yeah, I just I, I'm surprised I'm back here. I never thought I would come back. Um, but yeah, I went to this HNC. It was totally amazing. Like, it really opened my eyes. It allowed me to sort of get involved in the Glasgow music scene. Um, living in Glasgow, it was cool. Um, and just like my lecturers played for like. You know, there were session musicians like Bell and Sebastian and Teenage Fan Club and that sort of thing. So it was just really inspiring getting like knowledge off them. Like they would give me like, you know, music they thought I'd be into. Like they introduced me to like so many new bands and artists like Arthur Russell and Dirty Three and all these composers and musicians I'm still inspired by now. So, you know, I owe them quite a lot, sort of meeting them and them taking me on that musical journey. Um, yeah, and then I graduated. I ended up, I finished my, did HND, and then I went to Perth College to do my degree. Still living in Glasgow, commuting, but I hated Perth. It was rubbish. It was really <laughs> crap. <laughs> um, so I left after third year, and then just like continues playing bands. One of my, the bands I was in was doing quite well. We played like Tea in the Park and all that sort of thing. Um, did like session work for other bands and that sort of thing, and then it just it dragged on a bit. I, th- I was getting aware I was getting stuck in a rut living in Glasgow, sort of doing the same thing, just playing drums and like I don't know. One of the bands I was in fell apart, and like yeah, just I was kind of ground to a halt a wee bit, and I was always really interested in instrumental music and sort of ambient in classical music, especially sort of modern classical music, like, you know, these, you see a lot of these composers like Max Richter and Nils Fram and all these people, they were sort of up and coming when I was getting into that type of thing. And I'm quite lucky that my twin brother is a really good brass player, so... Because, I mean, the, the bands you'd been in up to this point, what I mean, what sort of music were you playing? Uh, all sorts. One, the band we played Teen Park with was like sort of folk rock type stuff. Um, and uh, the rest were sort of like indie pop bands and that sort of thing, and yeah, some post-rock bands, a bit of a mix. But I just got fed up playing. When you're doing session stuff, you're just playing other people's music, and I just, I don't know, I just got a bit fed up doing it. I thought that I had more to offer, you know, doing my trying to do my own stuff and getting sort of composing side of things. And um, yeah, as I say, I'm lucky. I've got a twin brother who's also into the same type of music that I am so we started doing the Kimbray thing in 2013 I think it was and up to that point I mean had you done stuff before not my own no I'd only ever played no but I mean like with your with your brother yeah he was in one of the bands I was in yeah but it's the first time like Kimbray was the first time where you sort of formally made stuff it's first time I'd really written my own yeah we'd written our own tracks and all that sort of thing and I'd only ever played drums so I'd never played piano or synthesizer or anything like that and then I just decided to try it <laughs> for some reason at the age of like 27 or something but yeah yeah so like we started doing that again we were just sort of mucking about and putting up tracks on SoundCloud and then yeah I was I was unemployed for a bit which was quite tough in Glasgow um, and then randomly this graduate job came up on the Isle of Call. So the Isle of Calls, like a little inner Hebrides island population of like 150 people or something. And they've got a, a charity there called Project Trust and they send like school leavers, people that take gap years basically, they, they support them to like teaching placements abroad and that type of thing. So it's, it's all over the world, they send school leavers. Um, I got a job there doing, so it's like a year-long graduate um, internship type thing but that was like when I really made me realise I wanted to do the Kimbray stuff like my own thing like 
it's a total light bulb moment being there, like just in you know the middle of nowhere. Really, it's just I found it so inspiring, just like to write instrumental music. It's totally amazing. Like I've never really had that experience before. Um, so yeah, I just did a lot of that year that I was there. I did a lot of composing, um, a lot of drinking alcohol as well. But <laughs> yeah, that was like my because I never went to university. When all my pals did, so that was kind of like my gap year, like my year at uni, kind of, you know, your first year when you're just sort of making the most of it. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was amazing. It was really good. So, yeah, we did like, in the back of that, I'd written like a load of demos and that sort of thing, and then we did a Creative Scotland application, um, and we were successful with that, and which was great, you know, getting a big wad of money was <laughs> <laughs> to do an album was amazing, and like, yeah. Then we found a record label, and then... So how, how did that process come about, then, finding a label? I just researched. I'd, I'd, I'd had an idea of labels I wanted to approach before, but um, it's really hard finding a label. I think, like, I, I probably sent out about 30 emails. You don't hear anything back, and then, you know, you, it's just luck, really, I think. And then this one label got back in touch and said they really liked it. Um... So yeah, I just got the ball rolling. Like, put at least it was an album called Tidal Patterns. So it was inspired by my year living on call. And so it was like, it was it was a music project, but it was also like photography. I did a lot of like thirty five millimeter photography and a lot of field recordings as well. Because that year I was there, I can't remember how it came about, but I was eligible to do like a masters like in. A, an intensive like one week long masters module with Chris Watson who does all the he's like the sound recordist for a lot of the David Attenborough documentaries so it's like this week long intensive field recording thing in air so I got to go with him and then another guy called Jez Valley French who makes a lot of like contact microphones and that sort of thing as well so yeah that was a real eye-opener as well so and then speaking to them really inspired me to do that album as well and, and yeah I learned loads of like field recording techniques and that sort of thing so that's still to this day I tried to incorporate field recordings as much as possible even if it's not I try not to make it obvious now that you know bird calls and all that sort of thing I try and manipulate them a bit in the software I used just to make him, you know, more of a texture in the background type thing, but yeah. So what's that, what's your creative process like then? Yeah, it's, it can come from anything. I mean, when I was first living on call, the, the main inspiration was I would go out and take a few recordings before work in the morning, and then I'd write sort of just simple piano lines while that was playing in the background. Then I would send it to my brother, and he would come up with the brass parts. Um, we still, yeah, we still kind of do that to an extent. A lot, yeah, or a lot of the time it'll just be me sitting down at the piano, coming up with little melodies, or or Michael send me like some brass stuff he's done. You know, it's very much the two of us doing it. It's not like there's one person. But you don't tend to be together when you do it. No, it's a bit of an odd one, but yeah. Have you ever tried it? Not really. No, just because we've never. You know, he lives in Edinburgh, and when we first started in the Cambrai stuff properly, I was on call, so it was like there was no way of <laughs> meeting up that often. But um, yeah, I think it works quite well. So doing it like that, I don't know. It's worked well so far. Oh anyway. yeah, so <laughs> two albums down. I know. Yeah. Why change it? I know. So yeah. So um, how does that? So you sort of throw back and forth bits and pieces, yeah. and then how does that formulate to the point at which you think? Right, that's done. Um, it just depends, really. I try. We usually work with a guy called Ben Chatwin, who's an Edinburgh-based um, electronic musician. He's got his own studio. Because I have everything I do or we do is like in our, you know, I do writing in that in my bedroom or whatever when my daughter's asleep and all that. So it's, I, I don't have my own studio space. So again, we usually try and get stuff to a pretty good level, like demo-wise, if it's like, and then we try go to his studio to finish stuff off, because he's got you know proper studio monitors and you know a much bigger range of equipment than I've got. So yeah, I quite like the the process of collaborating 
and getting feedback from somebody who's not 100% involved in the process. It's quite nice when you've written something, but it's not quite there, you know, to bring in somebody else to take over the line, I think helps quite a lot. So, yeah, that's the process we try and go through. And if no, like if someone's listening and they've never heard Kinbray's music, how would you describe it? It's <laughs> always a tough question, describing your own work. Um, it's very sort of landscape inspired. So, yeah, I try and I use a lot of field recordings of I've taken in Scotland just to give it a sort of sense of place, really. And I think when you write instrumental music, it's quite hard to make it personal. So I like to think that gives it a sort of personal story um it's sort of like minimal ambient it's a bit of electronic it's quite there's a lot of brass in it obviously because my brother's a brass player a bit of piano funnily enough i don't really do that much drums and percussion in it so well, i was gonna ask that because obviously yeah. you, you started off in, in drums but then maybe you just started rebelled against that i know i feel like i kind of have not intentionally but i've got a drum kit that's been sitting in my shed for about five years now that i don't know it's funny how it's you know when I was growing up playing drums, I thought I would never ever stop playing, but I've literally not played for about four years now. I played randomly, I played in a Cayley band when I lived on call. I got asked to help out doing that, so I think that was the last time I properly played drums. So. But then it's things like you, you go through your life and you think, ah, oh, this will always be that way, yeah. and then stuff comes along, things yeah, change. Life's changed. Yeah, doesn't and then it? you're so just like, like yeah. oh, actually. Mm. It's a progression for me, I think, kind of learning to not just play drums, but like, you know learn other instruments and learn more about music production as well because I mean I don't know anything about that sort of stuff I mean I still I'm still a novice really I'm still learning but you know I'm getting more into the sort of the geeky side of like EQs and compression and how to make a track sound good I find that really interesting as well so yeah it's, it's funny how it just it, things change don't they so because you said I mean that you picked up piano Mm-hmm. And is that something like just going to a new instrument and picking it up and having a like a try and teaching yourself? Is that something you're quite comfortable doing? Or I mean, yeah, I would say I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm comfortable doing it on my own, not in front of people. I would never play piano live. I don't think. Okay, but so you do that, perform live. Yeah, which is quite nerve wracking. But <laughs> it's different because I was so comfortable playing live, playing drums. Because it was something I was so used to, just, you know, being at the back of the the stage, like, and knew my role. Whereas, like, with the Kimbray stuff, it's just me and my brother that do it on stage. So, like, it's, it's just such a different process. But, yeah, it's good. Like, I'm still getting to grips with it, I think. But So, on stage, you, you, what, you've got a laptop? Yeah, like so the... I use a music software program called Ableton, which I run a lot of, like, loops and, like, field recordings off of. I sort of build like the skeleton of tracks in there and then on top of that I'll do like synthesizer stuff um, little bits and bobs like that and then Mike does all the brass stuff and he's got a little synthesizer that see he's a talented one, he's got a synthesizer that he plays with his feet while he's playing <laughs> brass so I know he shows me up so um, yeah so we try and do as much as we can the two of us I think like ideally going forward it'd be great to you know get session musicians in expand it a bit because it's quite hard when you write a studio album there's so many like overdubs and you know additional instrumentation that you can't really do live unless you've got a band really so yeah it'd be good to expand on that but yeah I think we've got the live set in a good place at the moment so yeah so yeah it's been a it's great I feel very lucky I get to do something I love with my twin brother to be honest like you know, I've always been really close to him, you know, growing up playing football and all that, and then now we're both, like, really into music. So, yeah, it's been... It's great. And then, yeah, we released an album back in April. That was our second album. Um, it's on a London label called Truant Recording, so it's quite a new label. Um, but again, I, I talked about luck earlier. I came down to... I got sent in the last job... My last job... I work for Creative Dundee at the moment, but my last job was with the UNESCO City Design team. And we got invited to, well, the place partnership part of the programme, got invited to a music conference in Glasgow, um, which must have been November 2017, maybe, I think. Yeah. Um, 
and I've been to these sort of music seminar things before. It's, it's they're okay. Like you know, it's a lot of people from different industries talking about different types of things. Um, you know, how to get your music into film and TV. How to you know using social media for music promotional. You know, all that type of thing. They're they're okay. They're more mainly aimed at sort of more sort of um, new artist type thing. So, but yeah, I went along to that and I, I noticed. Because I'm really keen to do music for film and TV. That's what I'd like to do. Become a sort of media composer would be pretty cool. And I noticed there was a, a there was a panel talk on I can't remember the title exactly, but it was like how to get your music synchronized in television or something like that. And it was four panelists from different music supervision companies. And um. Yeah, they got asked. The, the talk was like an hour long, and they got asked like, "Of oh, what?" Well, the questions was, "Of oh, what's the thing you're most proud of that you did?" And one of the guys was like, "Oh, I got um, a Nils Fram track put into a BMW commercial that was synchronized worldwide." And actually, the first track me Mike ever wrote was Nils Fram did a a rework competition for one of his albums, so he basically asked fans if they wanted to yeah do a rework of this album and then you put the tracks up online and you could download them and you know do whatever you wanted with them so the first thing we did was we did a sort of brass we rework one of these tracks with some minimal um electronics behind it um which was quite well received for us back then like Nils Fram retweeted and all that sort of thing so that was quite cool so the fact he mentioned that like all those years later I was like all right this is my way in to chat to him so I just sent him an email the next day. I was and because we recorded the album, but didn't know what to do with it. Um, I just sent him an email. I was like, oh, I really enjoyed your talk. Um, you know, it's cool to hear you, Nils Fram fan, like we are. Um, maybe you like this album. I sent him the album and like, fair played to him. He could have just not got back to us, but he got back like straight away and just totally loved it. And then, yeah, just. Totally got the ball rolling from there, like offered us a record deal. Got us to do an album for EMI, so they've got their own like music supervision side of it. So they've got their own music library as well. So basically a music library. If you get commissioned so they commissioned us to do a music library album. So basically that's like you get given a brief to write an album for you get a sort of a specific brief to write an album for TV. So, like, they'd given us a brief. They'd listened to our album Tidal Parent and then gave us, you know, like, oh, we were like this song. All these, this brief basically of like, write this song, what it does here, blah, 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 blah. Can you write a similar track that's three minutes long? You know, you get it's quite a strict brief, but, um, and then they basically, they have their own kind of streaming service and that type of thing where like clients can log in and then use your album and TV and that type of thing. So their their main clients like ITV. Um, so like, yeah, they're one of the big, probably the biggest like library album company. So yeah, we got on the back of like meeting him, we got to do one of those albums, which was really cool. Yeah, and then we released our new album in April. So I had a publishing deal with a company called Mavs McDade, which was sort of a female-led publishing company in London, which, again, is really cool, because apparently they're really selective with who they work with, but they really like us, so that's quite nice. <laughs> so where did the inspiration for the new album come from, then? Uh, it's based around, like, the River Tay. So I got, like, back in 2016, I got awards, like, this Landscape Partnership Art Award. It's, it's like an art award that's not around anymore. But um, it's like a thousand pounds to do like some work that was inspired by like the Tay landscape. So I'd written like four tracks. Again, it's the same process of doing like field recordings and yeah. And then I had like I'd bought a set of hydrophones. So like hydrophones are basically underwater microphones. So I'd done like underwater microphone recordings of the Tay and that type of thing. And then just yeah, built like five or six tracks around it. And then. We kind of thought, like, me and Mike thought it was quite a good idea to try and expand it, just to do an album. So again, we kept, I just kept going out and doing field recordings and then, yeah, kept writing and then we came up with, like, a nine-track at home, I think it is, or ten, nine. Yeah, we've been, we recorded that over a couple of years and then 
Yeah, it was put up in April. So yeah, that was the main inspiration, sort of the River Tay landscape. And, and so is that like how much of that is planned out? Like how many? Do you know how many tracks it's going to be, or like the, like how it's going to flow, or any of that? It's just what happens, happens. Yeah, just kind of what happens, happens. Really, <laughs> you tend to write more, and then you pick the best ones usually. So I think we'd I don't know maybe got like for that album it was maybe like fifteen tracks maybe. But like some were ditched pretty early on, or you know, really rough ones. Like I'm not really into that. Or so yeah, just totally. Yeah, I try not to plan it too much because you just never. I don't know. Just you never know where it's gonna go. I quite like the unknown, and that when you're doing that sort of creative process. So yeah, I try just to. Yeah, it just totally depends. Like yeah. And that was it was released on on vinyl. And yeah, it's on vinyl. Digitally as well. Yeah. So it's always great as a musician to get your music released on vinyl. So <laughs> that was really cool. Yeah. So yeah, and it got great feedback as well, which is always nice. It's always a, it's always a pressure when you're releasing your own music because it is, you know, it's your statement, isn't it? And you're putting it out into the world. So you're always like, not not that you just rely on, you don't do it to get good reviews, but. It is nice to get that feedback, you know, when you play a show, whatever, and people come up to you afterwards and be like, oh, that was really, that was really great. So, yeah, I've been quite lucky. So, so when you say good feedback, like, what, like, what does that mean? Where's that coming from? Is that like critical acclaim? Is that like, I don't know. Yeah, well, this album, because the label worked, this is obviously a much bigger label than the first album, so they had like a PR company and stuff. So, yeah, um, we got like, you know, really four star review or whatever in the skinny and then really good reviews and like music publications like the line of best fit which is like a really well regarded music magazine um self-titled magazine in america previewed uh they were the first to do the first review maybe or the first preview of one of the singles i can remember but yeah stuff like that so it really helped sort of grow our fan base hopefully <laughs> Yeah, so I still, we're still like going through, I still feel like we're really unknown, but I think, yeah. My plan always is to try and get busier and busier every year, and like, you know, do more and more, and we've done, we have been doing more and more slowly each and every year, so, yeah. And like, is there money to be made in the music industry? If you're lucky, there is, I think. <laughs> We've not cracked it yet, but I think it just totally depends. I think that's why I'm keen to try and get into like, the media, like film, TV side of it. You think that's more lucrative? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it just depends, but you know, if you get commissioned to do... It depends what TV channel you get commissioned to do stuff on or streaming service, whatever, and, you know. But, like, you know, if you get, like, commissioned to do you know, the theme tune for Line of Duty or something, then, you know, you're making a lot of money doing that. And the royalties and, like, the, the fee as well. Because we did that library album for EMI, so we've had some music in Emmerdale randomly, <laughs> <laughs> which is always a good one to tell the grandparents. But uh, And is that, like, yeah. on a like pair-of-play deal? So every time they use it, you get a play, or is it just, like, a flat fee? No, you get royalties from it, so I think it's, like, how it... I'm not really sure how it works. I need to look into it a bit more. But basically, the Emmerdale, I was getting played in Emmerdale because you get PRS statements, just like the performing rights society statements. So we've been getting, you know, money from that thirty-second play. You know, quite good money from that, just because you know it's I, Emmerdale shown on ITV, but then it's also shown on ITV Two at the weekends, and you know it's shown on different ITV channels. So that just ramps up the royalties so yeah so that's why I'm keen to get into that side of things just to not just to make money obviously but at the same time when you're trying to sustain a career you know well that's the thing helps, if you, if you can do things that okay so that you genuinely want to do and create and they can help sustain the career then then why not and yeah. if if you can build it up to the point where you don't have to have another job to support you then great right yeah absolutely yeah i mean that's yeah absolutely so yeah i mean it doesn't feel like you know getting asked it doesn't feel like work to me even if i you know we get a, a brief to do like an album for you or whatever or, 
you know, do something for Dundee Design Festival like I did a few months ago. You know, it is work, but it's not, you know, because I really enjoy it. So it's not like, it's not like, you know, I get home like, oh, I have to do that work. I can't be bothered, you know, and just, it's a nice feeling just to be able to, you know, the fact I make money off it is an extra, really, you know, if that keeps growing, which would be great, you know, maybe in a few years it'll be, you know, I'll be able to do it part-time and then even further, you know, it might become a full-time thing or it might not, but. Let's talk a little bit about um, We Live in the Future. Um, which was the, the sort of the part of the commission from Dundee Design Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, so we created a. I say we 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 sort of had a bunch of, sort of I don't know what you call them, like focus groups and discussions around the future of cities in general, and then sort of Dundee as well, and just um, trying to get lots of different perspectives from lots of different angles on, on what the future might or might not look like. Um, some completely ridiculous, some quite close to, to reality really um, and then we brought in a science fiction writer uh, Valerie Mullen who then created this narrative um, and then uh, Sam Gonsalves and Julie Cummins were also involved um, sort of helping guide that and then creating the, the visual picture viewers for that and uh, commissioning the illustrations to go alongside it um, and then they, about Sam in particular, got the voice actors together and we created a, the narrative then became audio-based. Um, and that's at the point at which as Sam sort of mentioned, maybe we should get like a a track or something underneath like a bed or um, some sound to, to actually bring this to, to life. Um, so how how did you find it? How did you approach it? <laughs> It's quite a last minute ask, but um, yeah, yeah, as as it, it was, a lot of things were, yeah. yeah. No, it's totally fine. Yeah, I mean, I really love. I like doing things that aren't just like. Just pu- purely releasing albums, it's good to do sort of collaborative things with other art forms. So doing this type of thing is totally perfect. And then yeah, I just kind of when Sam chatted to me about it, I just kind of responded to it straight away. It was, sounds like something. You know, because I do, even though it's all instrumental music without spoken words that I do mainly, it's still, because it usually has a theme, you know, whether it's inspired by the River Tay or the Isle of Call, there's a sort of narrative to it anyway, so I feel like what he wanted me to do, I could, I felt quite confident in being able to do it. Um, and then, but then, and at the same time, I didn't have an idea of what the music I was going to do was until he sent over the actual audio recordings of the voices. And that's when it really clicked because he'd sent me the sort of the text um, of each story, and I tried to sort of make notes, but it's kind of hard when you you're not you don't actually hear the the person's voice because the tone of their voice can just totally change. Yeah, like the from, feel of it. I mean, I, I noticed that especially with like the bicycle girl one was quite um became a lot more upbeat when I actually heard her voice. So um, so yeah, it was quite. It's just kind of you're trying to develop a musical language, aren't you, to sort of complement the the story i mean that's what i was sort of trying to do and i hope i did all right but yeah so it's yeah it was a cool fun project to work on it's good yeah because I, I mean the going from this text-based thing where the few of us had been reading over it and trying to refine it and then uh rework it and then for it to come to life in in audio with the, the voice actors it, yeah as you say like it completely changed the the feel of it and my yeah. impression of it and i think that was i mean it was down to the some of the like just the touches and the nuance that the voice actors brought to it yeah yeah definitely that made yeah that made a big difference um, but then it's like it's trying to create a soundscape for a f- a world that doesn't exist yeah and it's also trying to make that soundscape not too overpowering as well like it's got to sort of sit where it needs to sit, like not in the forefront, but it's still got to feel like it carries a message of some sort. So, yeah. And I just felt that it just tied everything together so like tightly, and it just felt much more polished. And um, like the room was, there was a dark space, sort of quite softly lit in with some sort of neon around it, um, and then these picture viewers that you could then look through. Yeah. Um, and I think that the sound that you added to it, it just sort of softened that whole space and it made it a really nice sort of welcoming space to be in, I think. It's very kind. <laughs> yeah, like it's a really cool project to work on. I mean, I'd love to do more of that type of stuff. It's always interesting. I just like getting 
it's just nice working with people from different art forms and getting their perspective on things and their creative processes and that type of thing. I think you learn a lot from that as well. So, yeah, hopefully there's more of that to come, but we'll see. <laughs> and so, I mean, to go back like to your journey, mm-hmm. I mean, the last, you sort of left it off where you were like, you'd done the trip to call. So how, how did you end up back in Dundee? Yeah, before I went to call, I'd just been working in coffee shops and like playing in bands because I stupidly thought like, oh, I'll just, I'll, I'll be able to do music full time one day. This is, I'll just play in bands, it'll be fine. And then the older I was getting, like the less of a reality that was coming. So, and like, I just hated working in coffee shops. Like I'm pretty quiet as it is. So like having to serve people breakfast and all that, like <laughs> weekend, like mornings, I was like, oh, I hated it. Um, so yeah, I ended up just volunteering, basically, with the Scottish Civic Trust. Because I was like, right, I don't really have any um, experience of doing anything other than working in coffee shops or doing music. So I was like, right, I need to change this. So I volunteered with the Scottish Civic Trust. And I basically did like their marketing and social media for the Doors Open Days. You know how they do the annual events? That was like, when did I do that? 2013. Yeah, and then I got the graduate job in 2014 till July 2015 so in about I'm trying to think in about April 2015 I was like right my year long contract's coming to an end I need to think of another job because I couldn't stay there because it was just like a they were funded by the the Highlands Islands Enterprise I think so it was just like a year placement so I couldn't stay there and I'd left my girlfriend in Glasgow anyway so I don't I don't (laughs) I'd agreed to stay there for a year and come back, so I was definitely going back. Um, so yeah, I started applying for jobs, and like um, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, Melissa, she went to university in Dundee, so she was always keen to come back. And yeah, I was quite, I was, quite, I was wanting, living on call for a year kind of made me realise that I wanted to change from Glasgow. Um, so I was looking on the Creative Scotland website for jobs and then I saw this like UNESCO site design, like desk officer with the UNESCO site design in Dundee. I just thought it was quite interesting. It was sort of similar to, not similar work-wise, but like a wee bit sort of admin side of things and that. So I just, yeah, applied for it and then I didn't hear back for ages. I think I sent off the application in end of April and then I didn't hear anything for ages. And then finally got an invite to interview in June, I think, June 2015, and then came over and met Stuart, Annie, Anna, I think it was. And then, yeah, I got got a good vibe. I've had some horrific interviews, like really, really bad. I'm so, I I get so nervous, like quite an anxious person. Some absolutely horrific interviews, but I got quite a good vibe just meeting them, like they're just really nice people and friendly and... Yeah, I got shortlisted and then they did like a second interview, I think, like a month later. So I think I'd been back for like, been back on the mainland for like a day and then they invited me back down to Dundee. And then, yeah, they just offered me the job and then I moved up um, in August, no, September, no, yeah, August, I started August 2015, August 2015 is when I started. And yeah, I never thought I'd be back, but I am. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it was, yeah, that job was really cool as well because it's like I, I, even though I grew up here I went to high school in St Andrews I didn't really know anyone in Dundee or anything but in that job because it was you know the UNESCO city design designation is quite a high profile thing so you know my first week I'd meet I'd met like you know Gillian Eason you know Claire Dow all these people that are well involved in the sort of creative and cultural sector in Dundee so it's it was cool just yeah getting stuck in and meeting people it's cool yeah and then obviously you d- you're involved in the two design festivals as well the big yeah things. which was interesting yeah <laughs> westward the first year in westward which yeah <laughs> i know that building so well off by heart but um yeah that was amazing like it was so cool doing something that was you know yeah it was such a big build up to it the first one especially and then inviting, you know, people from the other UNESCO cities came over for it and it was just, yeah, it was really cool. And then, yeah, and then the second one was cool as well, you know, Sean doing both of them. Yeah. 
it's good fun. <laughs> and you seem to be the person first then in the morning, having to open up and. Yeah, and then it was usually Annie that was the last one out. So yeah, we shared a set of keys. Yeah, that's a lot of teething issues with Westward, but yeah, it was still great. It's such a cool building, isn't it? When you walk into it that first time, it's like, whoa, man, it's, you can't believe the size of it. Like, it's incredible. But, um, so hopefully long term, something interesting happens with that. But yeah. Because then obviously after that, your your time with UNESCO came to an end. It did, yeah. So why, why move to Creative Dundee? Um, leaving that job was probably the, one of the best things I did. I mean that in the <laughs> nicest possible way. Like not, because like I got on with them so well, but at the same time you're just aware of being in jobs before you just like, you know, you have friends at work, but then you leave and you don't ever really see them again. Um, whereas with that one, because I went to work with Creative Dundee, so like we all knew each other anyway. Like I'm still all pals with them now, so it's quite nice that I still, you know, we still go on nights out at night type of thing and still all keep in touch, you know. They came to my wedding and all that sort of thing, so it's been really nice just to, you know, they're all my pals now. It's quite nice. I think if Dundee's that sort of scale, whereas yeah. you might not necessarily get that in a bigger city. Yeah, so it's, it's been really nice. And like Creative Dundee as well has been great because enjoying the job, but also like on the back of that has sort of helped me, you know, raise my people's knowledge of me doing music in Dundee as well you know you know, I probably wouldn't have got the commission from Sam to do the Dundee Design Festival thing if I hadn't been involved in that team and or I might have done but you know I th- think that's helped sort of raise my profile a bit and yeah it's cool because you mentioned like Sue um, earlier on but I mean what is in your eyes what's the like music like in Dundee at the moment Um. Mm, tough question. I th- it's it's okay. I don't think it's. To me, Dundee's not really a music city, and that's I don't mean that like, the music here is rubbish or anything. But you know, me coming from Glasgow, to hear like Glasgow is like, a proper music city. Is it? Proper like hub for music. I just it's not the same here. Like with Glasgow, you get so many like touring bands and like there's a lot of promoters and it's obviously because the size of the city is a lot bigger and it's got that history as well. You know, it's like one of, you know like Postcard Records. I think was one of the first independent um, record labels in the UK. You know, and they released like Orange Juice Records and all that sort of thing. And that was based in Glasgow, so that was one of the real sort of first independent um, labels. So it's got that history as well. And that's not to say Dundee doesn't have a history, but it's not got that same, like, touring network that other cities have. And I think, like, when it comes to, like, trying to develop a music scene, you need to start with, like, that grassroots level of, like, you know, get sort of medium-sized touring bands coming to Dundee and then you'll get local bands supporting. I think that's how you help develop a scene rather than just, like, these massive acts coming to the Caird Hall and they've got their own support. You know, it's, like, it's totally different. Yeah. Or, the, you know, Slessor Gardens. It's not a bad thing, but it's just, like, it just seems in Dundee there's, like, sort of the high end, like, you know, Caird Hall, Slessor Gardens, big arena shows, and then there's, like, a sort of really small DIY, like, make that take record stuff, which they do great stuff. They do the Big Green Fest, which is, is great, but it feels like there's not that middle level where you get like you know bands you know who are on like pretty big quite big size like independent labels you know like I'm trying to think of examples like Domino Records you know like yeah the the only thing that I've I've seen recently which is really encouraging I think is the stuff that Asai have been doing yeah I think yeah like the in-store stuff's really cool what they're doing they're bringing sort of pretty well-established Artist, I think I like the stuff that Dominic Ventatozzi, I think that's how you pronounce his name. The stuff he's been doing over in Newport, you know, the Newport selling stuff. So he's had Roddy Wimbo from Idlewild, he's had King Creosote, you know, um, Spare Snare, who are sort of well renowned Dundee band. And there's always like local band supporting, so I think that's really cool because that seems like a little scene to me, like over there. So I think, yeah, it just depends. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how the Dundee thing is gonna go. Cause like with the reading rooms closing as well, I think that was like the one real 
from a music point of view, like that venue-wise, that's like the one real success story was the reading rooms, and now it's like being closed down. So it's like. But then, if there's a desire for that, and there's an audience there, mm-hmm. then could that not exist in another venue? Yeah, totally good. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what. I noticed Asai have been doing. I think they do some shows in Fat Sam's and that as well. Don't yeah, they? so they've had Two Door Cinema Club. Yeah, um, and a few others. Do they have Foles as well? Yeah, they had Foles as well. Yeah, which so I yeah, mean that's, that's your sort of middle. Yeah, road absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Going up to actually Foles are actually quite big now. So yeah, so um, I mean, like you know, if more stuff like that happens and. It's great. Hopefully, yeah, that's the yeah. sort of catalyst for it. And then they're sort of tying, tying it into you're buying an album and you get a ticket for the gig sort of thing. So it's a nice mechanism. And then with the Sai, like they're taking on um, shopping Union Yeah, it just Street. opened today, I think. Oh, did it? Yeah. Oh, um, so, yeah, it's like if it has a, more of a presence in the city centre, then potentially that will help things as well. It's only a good thing, isn't it? Like Yeah. So, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how, yeah, what, how they like what they're doing, so... Um, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So to sort of have a total tangent from that, as um, all good conversations start in the pub, um, we had a chat a, a few weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, about an Instagram account. Classic football shirt. Which, if if you're <laughs> in any way interested in football, um, I'd highly recommend. It is incredible, isn't it? Yeah, and it sort of sparked a conversation about. Uh, like the classic football shirts and the nostalgia surrounding them and mm-hmm. just how I mean in my opinion how mundane football shirts have become in, in yeah, general absolutely. the 90s was like peak football design I think yeah I'm yeah I just love the kits from the 90s I think because I grew up wearing those kits as a kid so like yeah and especially like World Cup '94 in America, I think that was like peak football kit. So they had like really sort of quite horrendous kit designs, really, but like they're so iconic. Like I think that's what makes it the more memorable, whether it's good or bad. I think the better. Like I think, yeah. Because as you mentioned, it was you have this thing with kit designers. So say your your bigger manufacturers, so like your Nikes and your Adidas, is they're you can pay a certain a club can pay a certain fee and and get their generic template with yeah. in the club colours for that year with the badge and the sponsor and, and whatever else on it, um, or you can pay for a custom design, um, which obviously costs more, which the smaller clubs can't necessarily afford, yeah. um, or some clubs just aren't really that bothered about paying. And it's sad to see that that's now the model and it's not the norm to come up with something that excites the fans. Yeah, it's, it's, it's changing a wee bit. I think, like, the Euro 2000, when Italy had that really plain, like, skin-tight kappa top, that's when it changed, like, pretty much up until the last few seasons, when it's been like, really plain, tight-fitting tops. Whereas now you've sort of noticed... You noticed it with, like, the World Cup last year when Nigeria wore that totally amazing home kit that was inspired by like I think it's inspired by the, the 1994 kit they wore because um, that was their first ever World Cup I think so yeah you're starting to see it come back a wee bit like that sort of that really sort of interesting design but, but I just want the uh, uh, like absolute madness I know it'll come back come I'm sure it's yeah. got to <laughs> like the the crazy like the Scotland the the white with the purple and the red yeah like the I was looking at that today zigzag. yeah I can't remember what season I think that was like the 91 93 one or something yeah yeah there's been some absolutely amazing ones yeah the best one still I think I told you about the, the Dungeon United 1994 away one it's called the Jackson Pollock kit. It's like <laughs> paint splatter. Amazing. <laughs> but that's it. Like the the fact that you can create something that that people will remember by calling it the Jackson Pollock by yeah. having something that is so iconic that that it's just like you can describe it without like in a couple of words. Um, yeah, I think like the, a lot of the kit sponsors now are rubbish as well. So like betting companies. So, whereas like in the nineties, a lot of them had like. Like games consoles, like Commodore used to be on the PSG one. Um, well, Dreamcast used to be on Arsenal. Um, it has been loads. Like, but then you've got to go in the other way this season with like Motherwell's deal with is it Paddy Power? Yeah. Where they don't have a, mm-hmm. it's just a blank kit, and it's meant yeah. that kit sales have gone 
yeah, massive. That's, that's the whole thing they're doing to like, I think Paddy Power leading on it actually to like bring the the kit back essentially because like I think a lot of people feel like the the front panel um, logo of the brand has just like taken over a lot of these kits. A lot of the time you see like these um, companies refuse to change the colour of their logo so like they'll have like a classic I don't want to talk about Dungeon United all the time but a classic was like a few seasons ago because Dungeon United have like a tangerine or- orange kit and they were sponsored by Calor which is like a gas company and they had like a red logo so it's like orange and red it's like it just looked horrendous yeah and you see that like it just looks you know it just looks crazy <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's, there's loads of weird stuff around sponsors. Like the like in Glasgow, like both the teams had the same sponsor for a while because yeah, the f- tents weren't they for a while? Yeah, and like NTL. And yeah, yeah. Like it was so that well, I think it was because it so that the half of the city didn't just boycott that company yeah, because no. they sponsored the other <laughs> team. And it's like, oh, okay. which is, I mean, it's completely ridiculous in itself, but it's reality, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Nah, if I could wear football tops every day, I probably would. Like. <laughs> Just like nineteen nineties ones. There's yeah. so many good ones. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean hopefully they come back. That's that's I'm trying to get actually I need to mention to Sam. So I work with a guy called Sam who's the digital producer um, for Creative Dundee and he's Brazilian. And the World Cup nineteen ninety four winning Brazil top is amazing. So I need to tell him to get that and wear it because he was like amazing. <laughs> <laughs> He's got an excuse. He's Brazilian. He can get away with it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, when's his birthday? I don't know. I think it's coming up actually. So yeah. There you go. You have to source it though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So before we finish up, um, what? So what? What does the future hold for you and for Kinbrae? Mm. Yeah. What does it hold? Um, I'm doing a few um, funding applications so um, some a Scottish writer called Claire Archibald is keen to sort of do um, a collaboration with us so I'm working on a funding application for that um, yeah I'm going to do another application Creative Scotland one probably for just another album um, more down the sort of prove- professional development side of things I'm quite keen to get better at sort of mixing and recording my own music so so have you got like a direction or a, an idea for that already no not really but i'm going to work with ben chatwin i think as a sort of mentor i think so yeah he's helped me a lot in the past so i think i'll try and continue that support that'd be cool yeah we, we've talked about we might do i think in october will be six months since we released the album so i think we might try and do like a digital ep um, a couple of new tracks and then maybe like a rework of one of the tracks on the album yeah what else I don't know I just try and keep keep it going really I've not lost that momentum for it like if anything I just feel like I'm getting more and more passionate for doing music so I don't like being a dad as well like I've got a daughter who's going to be three soon so I don't know part of me wants her to grow up and be aware that I'm passionate about something. So, uh, the, okay, I've got a friend who has curated playlists for his son. And, like, he said, okay, this is all the music you need to listen to in this genre. And <laughs> here's all the stuff you need to listen to in this. And here's all the stuff I listened to when I grew up. And, like, that's amazing. It's already categorized, mm. all that ready to go. I mean, I don't know whether that's, like, too controlling. <laughs> yeah. A wee bit. I used to I, was, I used to do the night feeds from Blythe was a baby, so I and I used to like play albums when I was doing that, but she's getting older, she's like really into like Disney films and all that and all the, the soundtracks that go with that, so yeah. I don't want to control it too much, I kinda of want her to discover it. But yeah, I have yeah, a bit of a say, but not too much. So So I mean I've not asked, like what when you're not creating music, what do you listen to? What do I listen to? I, I kind of listen to music less and less these days. I just listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, recent albums I've really liked. Uh, the new Clark album's really, really good. It's called Kerry Variations. Um, what else? The Chernobyl. Have you seen the Chernobyl um, TV the, show? Yeah, yeah. HBO? The phenomenal. soundtrack for that is amazing. So that's by an Icelandic composer. I won't try and pronounce her name because it's quite hard. But um, 
Yeah, that's incredible. So, yeah, but I just I mainly listen to podcasts to be honest. I'm okay, so obsessed. give us some podcast recommendations. Adam Buxton's the go-to one. Yeah, um, he's good, and his musical genius jingle. Yeah, he's so good. Just, just the ones, brilliant. especially the ones he does with um, the episodes he does with Louis Theroux are just hilarious. Because also they're pals from school, so they're just like they're just daft, like singing songs and all that. It's just really funny. Uh, what else? Um, a case file. It's like a true crime okay. one. That's really good. Richard Herring one. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, did he's you like he's did, doing like a week. He's doing a festival run at the moment, so there's loads of them. Yeah. Have you listened to the one, the two he's done with Limmy? Yes. They're amazing. Have you listened to the Brian Blessed one? No, I haven't. That actually. is literally one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. Okay, I need to give that. Listen. You need to, like I know at Brian Blessed people are like oh I'm not that sure but please please listen to it it's like the funniest thing I've ever listened to. What else do I listen to? The Chernobyl podcast. I don't so know like, of Chernobyl. Yeah, so I watched all the episodes, um, listened to the soundtrack, and then listened to the podcast as well. So. So is it like behind the scenes? It's like episode by episode. Oh. So it's basically like what's true and what's not, and it's like kind of horrifying what's true. <laughs> so now I'm going to have to go back and watch the episodes and then listen yeah, to the Yeah, well, podcast. I might actually go back and rewatch it as well, because I just, I, I, that was amazing. That's one of the best TV series I've ever seen, I think. And it's relatively short, so it's what, five, six episodes? Six episodes, yeah. I actually, and then I read like Chernobyl Prayer, which is like one of the books that inspired the TV show. So I'm totally Chernobyled out, to be honest, like... That was quite a tough read, so... Um, yeah, what else have I been listening to? I'm trying to think. Let me get my phone. <laughs> There's a really good football one. That's a totally Italian football show. Okay. Not that I'm massively into Italian football, but um, they do... They look a lot at like, the history of Italian football, especially, like, sort of scandal stories from the 90s. When I used to watch it, remember when I used to be on Channel Italia Four. Italia ninety, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know, no, it's football Italia. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's really good. Um, distraction pieces. Yeah, Obscurious Pip. Yeah. Yep, that's really good. Um, soundtrack with Edith Bowman. That's really good. Okay, so awesome. she sort of interviews leading composers or directors. So it's all about sort of music and film and that. That's amazing. She just did one with Max Richter, which was very very good. Um, what else? 99% Invisible. That's quite good. That's one I got told about. Yeah, there's a, a really good one recently on Sand. Yeah, oh yeah, I've not listened to that one. The one I listened to recently was the Ford Landia one. It's like um, Ford, the car company, basically started their own town in like Guyana like in the, I, think, I think it was in Guyana like in the middle of the rainforest basically so they could produce rubber for tires and all that but basically like failed so there's like this empty town in, this, in the middle, middle of the, the jungle so it's really interesting yeah I think that's about it for my main I mean that's loads to be fair yeah there's People more but like they're more sort of random <laughs> just yeah I won't really <laughs> but, um, so if people want to find you or your music um where do they do that? Uh Kimbray.co.uk. Um I think I'm at Kimbray Music on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, we're on Facebook as well. Yeah. Spotify. Spotify, yeah, all, all digital Spotify, iTunes, all that type of thing. So Yeah. Cool. cool. Thanks very much. No worries, thanks a lot. <laughs> Yeah, so that was episode 88. Thanks to Andy for coming and doing the podcast. Um, Yeah, go and listen to his music if you haven't done already. Uh, Links are in the show notes. And yeah, if you're interested in any way in football shirts, um, definitely check out that Instagram account. Again, the link is in the show notes. Um, Yeah, so that's that's pretty much it for this week. Unless you don't follow the podcast, um, because it's the best way to keep up to date with everything, uh, with new episodes, other things that are happening. Um, yeah, so it's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and Instagram. It's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee, or we're on Spotify um, or all good podcasting platforms. But yeah, that's it for this week. 
uh, yeah, next week I'll be joined with Laurie, joined with, joined by Laurie Anderson, uh, director of Creative Dundee. So yeah, looking forward to that. Uh, yeah, until then, bye. <laughs>